Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Bidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring the song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. I was trying to find a Christmas sweater or something. I thought I had one, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, that'd be fun. There we are. I wore green because, uh, you know, how did that become a thing? I don't know, actually. I don't know where the Christ- Christmas colors came from. Christmas colors, red and green. Red is the blood of Jesus, <laughs> and green, of course, green it is. is the evergreen tree, representing eternal life as it stays in this hue throughout the winter. There you go. Fair enough. I'll take it. Sounds great. Welcome to the You Wanted a Hit holiday episode, our annual Christmas episode. Yeah, our second holiday episode in a row, too, which is... Oh, that's true, because we did... Pretty, uh, pretty crazy. We did a Thanksgiving episode this year, we did, which indeed. was great. Yeah. We have quite a story today. Quite a quite a Christmas story. I I I should have known that I was getting into some deep shit here. And uh it delivered, I'll tell you. So I'm I'm gonna crack this Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest. I think it's my last one. A little Ooh, there it is. A little crack of the can. There's a lot of drinking in this story. So I have a feeling I know what the song is. I have a feeling you do too. And I have a feeling our listeners have may may have guessed which one this was going to mm. be, uh, but it had been on my list, and then for a number of reasons, uh, I think it needed to happen. All right, let's get to it. Let's see if I'm correct. All right, here is the Christmas song that we will be discussing on this very special episode of You Wanted a Hit. Yep, yeah, that's exactly what I thought it would be. <laughs> it, I figured you'd pick this one because it's very you. Bro just died. And then when you gave me the the Eagles clue, I was like, oh, I know exactly what it is. So did you think it was this before I even said that? Yeah, but yeah. that sealed the deal for me. Well, Great song, I guess. It's like, it is. It's not like a... It's not all my typical Christmas listening. It's, you know, a little depressing. Uh, it definitely entered my Christmas listening later in life. Like, definitely, I'd say like 10 years ago, probably. It's fair. Uh, I feel like I heard it a lot more in Chicago than earlier in life. But uh, I think it's a song that keeps keeps growing even more. Uh, but for those unaware, this is Fairy Tale of New York by Irish, English, Celtic, folk punk band, The Pogues and English singer-songwriter Kirsty McCall. Let's do it. Let's do it. Shane McGowan was born on Christmas Day in 1957. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> yep. Although, unfortunate to him, I really wouldn't want to be born on Christmas Day. Well, he said he got a kick out of it because to his family, there was only one day in which he was more important than Jesus, and that was on Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's fair. Yeah. 
Uh, and I got to be honest, I always thought that Shane McGowan was Irish through and through, but he was born in England. Yeah, I did too. He was born in Pembury, Kent. Uh, you know, the Pogues are a very Irish sounding band and the subject matter of their songs very Irish, but his family moved back to Ireland very quickly after he was born. And he spent his childhood in Tipperary, Ireland. What, what, what town? Tipperary. You know, do you know Tipperary, Ireland? Yeah. Where is it? Have you been? Is it cool? It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Theo's Irish girlfriend, everyone. (laughs) Said it's fine. He spent his early childhood in Tipperary, Ireland, grew up with his younger sister, Siobhan, who would also go on to be a successful musician and songwriter in the 90s. Uh, She also had a stint as Van Morrison's personal assistant for a few years. Wow. Went on to work as a notable journalist, visual artist, and novelist. Their parents were indeed Irish. Dad's from Dublin, and mom is from Tipperary. Shane's mom won competitions for her Irish singing, Mm. and she later encouraged Shane to pursue music so that he could be famous after she could be. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of sweet. I feel like you you see that a lot in in life, though. Like, failed athletes, like, force their kids to follow their dreams. I don't think it was a a forceful thing. I think she was just supportive of whatever he wanted to do. Um, That's nice. Which we found in, and I feel like uh, several of our episodes, that's, uh, that's a privilege, for sure, to have that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Tipperary was where the War of Independence against England started in 1919. Wow. And according to the terrific 2020 documentary, Crock of Gold, A Few Rounds with Shane McGowan, which I watched this week, Shane's early life in Tipperary, Ireland, informed much of his perspective and also his songwriting throughout his life. Uh, The family lived on what we would perceive as a stereotypical Irish farm, and Shane worked hard with his family from an early age. To quote Shane, we pissed out the front door and shit in the fields. I remember when electricity came into the house. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Despite how hard they worked farming during the day and how much the families in their community struggled, the nighttime was so lively with music and dancing and drinking that Shane says in Tipperary, every night was Christmas. And there's some nice footage in the documentary of all of them celebrating in the pub. Love it. Uh, the family was strictly Irish Catholic, and his aunt, who helped Shane study the Bible, would reward him with stout and cigarettes <laughs> at age four. Wow. Yep. Shane said, fuck was the most popular word in the Irish language, and I started using it at a young age. <laughs> to sum it all up, Shane McGowan was essentially a grown man by age six. When his family picked up and moved to London, Hmm. Shane's mother asserted that it was hard to find enough work outside the farm in Ireland, and his mother thought they'd find a better life in England. Shane looks back at this time and reflects that you couldn't find a better life in England if you were Irish. They won't let you move into the middle class. Shane was immediately picked on for being Irish, and life was tough for him and his family in London. But Shane remained proudly Irish. He blames the family's move for his first nervous breakdown, and he had that shortly after the move. So we're talking like six years old. He's already struggling a little bit with mental health. Uh, He said that he dreamt of Ireland every night, and he truly hated England. Wow. The family moved a lot throughout England, and Shane was in and out of schools, both because of that and because he would get kicked out, usually due to fighting, drinking, and drug use. Uh, I should also note that around this time, Shane was diagnosed with acute situational anxiety. 
However, Shane's parents were encouraging of his advanced literary interests and later his musical endeavors. Shane said that they were literary people, even if they were illiterate. Uh, he was already reading Steinbeck and uh, Dostoevsky at age 11, which wow. made his teachers a little suspicious of what was going on at home. Uh, Shane started to get into reggae with his friends at school, and that music made him feel good and feel seen, as it did for many young London kids when Jamaicans immigrated to England. Oh, interesting. When Shane finally got kicked out of school for good as a teenager, he worked in grocery stores and in construction which he much preferred to school where he was being picked on, felt like he wasn't learning the right things. A couple years later, his parents were splitting up and Shane looked to the London nightlife for comfort, doing psychedelics and going to clubs, even putting on his mom's fur coats and makeup to go out and then bringing the party back home late at night, which his mom had mixed feelings about. In the documentary, she's kind of like, eh, at least they're doing it at home and they were safe. <laughs> Shane had several more nervous breakdowns and spent six months in a mental institution. When he got out, the Sex Pistols were starting to gain notoriety. Shane saw himself in their craziness and loved that they were celebrated for acting out on their mental anguish and anger. He said the Sex Pistols saved his life. Wow. Uh, he started working at a record shop, and he even started his own fanzine called Bondage. Uh, I'm going to send you a photo of a young teenage Shane with... Uh, with his magazine, his fanzine that he made. Like a, a fanzine called Bondage, I would expect uh, different material. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. if I was looking for that material, it would be greatly uh, you know, disappointing. Oh, wow. What a shot. <laughs> yeah. So good. Shane attended an early class show in 1976, where these photos of him were taken and published in the paper in London. Oh, wow. Yeah cannibalism at clash gig yes that's the headline in the paper <laughs> this actually gave the clash their first significant press coverage oh wow and this shane right here in the the first page there? yeah that's yeah awesome. that's him yeah what a great shot yep uh joe strummer said without mad jane's teeth and shane's earlobe we wouldn't have gotten the papers that week <laughs> Mick Jones from The Clash actually says that Shane's ear wasn't really bitten off at the show. It turns out that Mad Jane, who was the, the other fan involved here, and Shane were up front at the gig, and they were having a spirited laugh, biting each other's arms, and cutting themselves with bits of broken bottle, and they had blood oh, wow. all over themselves. Eventually, things got even more crazy, and Jane smashed a bottle on the side of Shane's head. Wow. And that's what happened to his ear. It wasn't biting his ear, just his arms. Uh, so there was some light cannibalism going okay. on, um, but you'll see in any photos or footage of Shane, I noticed in the documentary, uh, his left earlobe uh, is a bit unique from this incident. I love it. All right. After this, the inevitable happened, and Shane started his own punk band. Fuck yeah. The Nipple Erectors. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, <laughs> that adds up. Okay. <laughs> the Nipple Erectors were more in the vein of bands like the Stooges and X, who incorporated Rockabilly and Garage Rock into their sound. They later renamed themselves The Nips, for short, and like they, released, they released a few singles before recording a demo for Polydor Records. And the demo was produced by none other than Paul Weller of The Jam. The Jam is back, oh, back wow. on the pod here. Look at that. Yeah, so here is, here's The Nips, The Nipple Records. Let's check them out. Nip's a good name. It is a good name. Nipple Records is a little, a little more strange. Honestly, I never listened to him. It's really good. 
They're great. Fun. Yeah, they're really good. Good melodies. Um, it's very Clash esque. Yes. I like it. Yeah. I heard in the documentary Shane say something about how uh, so Shan Bradley is the bassist and songwriter in the band, and I guess she. I think she and Shane were fooling around, and uh, she said that his nipples were easily erect. So that's that's where the name came from. Uh, they had a bit of a revolving door throughout their time as a band, other than Shane and Chan. Uh, at any given time, the band had future members of iconic bands like The Dam, Culture Club, Madness, and Ozzy. Oh, wow. Eventually, after 1980, the band started incorporating elements of international music, such as Greek music, Creighton song and Irish folk. They even added a folk fiddler to the band. Unfortunately, or perhaps for the better in the big picture, Shan Bradley decided to take a break from music. And out of the ashes of the Nips, Shane, Nips accordion player James Fernley, drummer Andrew Rankin, bassist Kate O'Rourdon, banjo player Jim Finer, and tin whistle player Peter Spider Stacy, whom Shane met in the bathroom at a Ramones show in 77, went on to form a new band called Pogue Mahone. <laughs> oh, wow. He's, he's big on a long name, a short name. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, Stan Drew. Yep. Shane Spider and Jim had a short-lived band called the Millwall Chainsaws after that meeting at the Ramones mm, show. Uh, and now they're back together in Pogue Mahone. Pogue Mahone is an anglicization of a Gaelic phrase, which means kiss my arse. <laughs> The band played their first show in October of 1982. They soon released their first single, Dark Streets of London, on their own Pogues Records. Sounds like the Pogues. Very, yeah, very Pogues, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Full key Celtic leaning. Yeah. Uh, they quickly gained a following while playing clubs all over London and enjoyed airplay of Dark Streets of London on BBC Radio 1. It was at this time that Gaelic speakers in Scotland called in the BBC with complaints about the band's name being obscene. The mm. band subsequently renamed themselves The Pogues. So what, what would that translate to? I don't know. I, I don't. It's not arses, <laughs> so Mahone must have been must be arse, I guess, or my arse, I guess, Mahone. Uh, so not very punk rock to uh, to fold so quickly. Yeah, pressure. it's just a better band name, though. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's the kisses. Then I would say, kisses. yeah, Cute. cool. Uh, the band, as most know, or if you don't, you can hear for yourself, is heavily influenced by Irish music and Irish culture and folk songs and instruments that were hundreds of years old. They frequently sang of Irish traditions, politics, and Irish nationalism, all while maintaining residence in England. All of this combined with their roots in punk rock made them truly timeless, or rather, as I added here, a band out of time. In early 1984, the Pogues were then invited to support The Clash on tour, a full-circle moment for Shane. On that tour, the band was noticed by Stiff Records, a famed indie label in London that has released records by The Damned, Devo, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, Madness, Tracy Ullman, and more. Uh, pretty much all punk and new wave artists. Stiff signed the band and released their debut album, Red Roses for Me, later that year. It's a shame that the nipple records 
didn't get signed to stick right. Right? Oh, it's come very full circle. I didn't even think about that. That makes sense. Even more with the Irish theme, they've got John F. Kennedy on the on the album cover. Oh, wow, they do. <laughs> Whose picture is in the bottom left-hand corner of the album? I don't know the story behind that, actually. Uh, probably a band member that didn't make the shoot or joined the band after it was after uh, the photo was taken. <laughs> so unnecessary. <laughs> I love it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. The, the picture of them looks like a, a behind-the-scenes shot from Boardwalk Empire or something. I definitely get that vibe as well. The way they're dressed, for sure. Again, they're, they're a band out of time. Yeah. Also, hold up. The logo is like a mix of, like, the Grateful Dead and... <laughs> Like, uh, I don't know, Slayer or something. Yeah. Totally what a weird mix. Yeah, it really is. The band appeared on UK TV shows and gained even more notoriety around Britain and Ireland. Specifically, on the Channel 4 program, The Tube, they played the song Waxy's Dargle. And during the taping, Spider Stacy hit himself in the face over and over with a beer tray for the unique percussion sound in the song. Cool, cool. Uh, and here is the clip that they, they play in the documentary that I watched. We've mentioned the two of him a doing times. this. Yeah, we have. Yeah, you're right. Uh, watch this. You'll see. You'll see Spider Stacy smashing himself in the face with the beer tray. <laughs> so good. I mean, how could you forget that if you see that on TV at yeah. that time? You know, even now, I feel like wild. After touring and promoting their debut album for a year, it was time to get started on the sophomore record. For this album, the band added guitarist Philip Chevron, which is just a great name. That's a good name. And tapped a famous figure to produce the album, none other than English New Wave poet laureate Elvis Costello. Wow. His manager approached the band about having Elvis produce, because Elvis was a fan, and he recorded two songs of the band that went so well that he ended up doing the whole album. Elvis said of his vision for the album, I saw my task was to capture them in their dilapidated glory before some more professional producer fucked them up. (laughs) (laughs) This album came to be titled Rum, Sodomy, and The Lash. Much better title (laughs) than the last one. Uh, You are maybe asking yourself, what in the hell does that mean? I did. Oh, no. I'm aware. Oh, you're aware? No, I have no idea. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, it's a famous quotation from infamous British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Oh. In a description of the goings-on of the British Royal Navy. Wow. However, turns out the quotation was inaccurately attributed to Churchill, according to the International Churchill Society. I went on their website. Mm-hmm. It's even in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations attributed to him. But from what I could tell, it appears that it was actually a naval phrase from the 19th century. Oh. So I guess those things were actually going on. So cool. All right. Yeah. While the band's debut album featured many cover songs, this album moved more into songwriting, with Shane emerging as a rather gifted bard. However, this album did include the band's famous version of Ewan McCall's Dirty Old Town. Have you heard that before? I don't know. That's a pretty iconic Pogue song. I don't know a lot of Pogue stuff, but kind of just know the name and the Christmas song. I always thought that this was their song, and I've actually heard some other artists cover it and say, oh yeah, the Pogues. In fact, when I was in Nashville this weekend, I was in a uh, dive bar and heard a country band play this song. Yeah. Yeah. But I always thought it was their song. But it's uh, Ewan McCall. It's a little more of a, more ballady Shane McGowan. Yeah, I don't think I know this one. 
Let's but go yeah, on. Definitely more ballady. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. A little, a little, getting a little closer to Fairy Tale of New York. Though the album was critically and publicly acclaimed, and it seemed as if the band was poised for stardom, Shane's unpredictable and destructive behavior made it difficult for the band to maintain its time on the road and properly promote the album. It got so bad that the band flat out refused to make another album. On top of all that, their relationship with Elvis Costello was on the outs, as Elvis had begun dating bassist Kate O'Rourdon, and she subsequently left the band to join Elvis's band, The Attractions. Wow. Yeah, he came. He really did fuck shit up when he came in. Yeah. Stiff Records also went bankrupt around this time, which made matters even worse, as the band was still stuck in a contract with a label that essentially wasn't operating. Shit. It wasn't until 1987 that the band's legal situation was resolved, and they could get to work on a new album. So this is a couple years later. The band replaced Kate with Daryl Hunt and also added multi-instrumentalist Terry Woods. Uh, and Shane stopped playing guitar and just wanted to focus on singing. All right. This time, the band hired Steve Lillywhite to produce the album. Oh. Yeah, I, I think he's come up before on the pod. Um, he was a big-time producer in the post-punk and new wave world. He worked with every band you could imagine in that space, but he also had worked with punk icons like Johnny Thunders and Susie and the Banshees. <laughs> Notably, Steve had never recorded a band live in the studio, and of course, the Pogues insisted on recording live. The album, If I Should Fall From Grace With God, went on to become the band's real breakout album. And it's on this album that we find the topic of the evening, Fairy Tale of New York. Let's go. A song that Shane describes as quite depressing in the end. It's about these old Irish-American Broadway stars who are sitting around at Christmas talking about whether things are going okay. Oof. The song has roots in the year 1985 and experienced rewrites, re-recordings, and personnel changes in the two-plus years between its conception and its release. As you may not be surprised, the band argues about where this song originally came from. They do all agree that it started in 85, but its actual story is, uh, I wouldn't say a point of contention, but when it comes up, one of them will just say, that's not right. They have a different story. Uh, interesting. As Shane tells it, uh, when they're in the studio with Elvis Costello making Rum, Sodomy, and The Lash, Elvis wanted the band to write a Christmas song and make it a duet between Shane and Kate but said he didn't think Shane had the chops to write a good Christmas song. Ooh. Which, like, knowing about Elvis, like, kind of makes me think that he was just, like, razzing him to inspire him to do something. A lot of shitty Christmas songs out of the 80s. Uh, yeah, we've covered some. Yeah. Uh, however, Pogue's accordion player, James Fernley, wrote in his memoir, Here Comes Everybody, that the band's manager at the time, Frank Murray, suggested that the band cover the song by the band. Like, the band. The yeah, you know, American Canadian folk rock group. Uh, he wanted them to cover their song "Christmas Must Be Tonight." You know that song by the band? Uh, right, check it out. Check it out here. This is what he wanted the Pogues to cover. I've heard it before on Christmas playlists and stuff. Oh yeah, that song. Yeah. Well, James recalls. It was an awful song. We probably said, fuck that, we can do our own. That's why he thinks they started the song. Either way, Shane and Pogue's banjo player Jem Finer got to work on the song. Jem was born in Stoke-on-Trent, England, in a family of academics. Before he helped start the Pogues, he studied computing and sociology at Keele University and spent time working on barges in France. He then moved to London, where he met Shane Spider and James. 
Though he mostly played banjo in the Pogues, he also played mandola, saxophone, and hurdy-gurdy, a hand-cranked string instrument with a keyboard. It looks like a violin mixed with an accordion, essentially. Okay. Uh, Jem wrote more songs for the Pogues than anyone else other than Shane. Hmm. In a 2012 Guardian piece about the song for its 25th anniversary that I pulled a lot of stuff from, it was written by Dorian Linsky, uh, kind of a kind of a guiding light for this episode is a marvelous piece. Jim says of the song, for a band like the Pogues, very strongly rooted in all kinds of traditions rather than the present, it was a no-brainer. Jem first tackled the Christmas song from the angle of a sailor missing his love back at home at Christmas, but his own wife, Marsha Farquhar, told him that that was corny. Yeah, right? She told him that was, quote, corny. (laughs) And Jim said to her, fine, you make a suggestion then. And she did. Her suggestion, as Jim puts it, was a couple falling on hard times and coming eventually to some redemption. Jim says he had written two songs, one with a good tune and poor lyrics, and the other with a poor tune, but with the basis of the lyrics that would become Fairy Tale in New York. Okay. Jim also adds that there's a secret history to it, some truth to the song based on people he knew, but he's never really elaborated more on that. Hmm. Shane doesn't believe that there are real-world references. Instead, he says, the story could apply to any couple who went anywhere and found themselves down on their luck. For those less familiar with the song, it follows an Irish immigrant's Christmas Eve reverie about holidays past while sleeping off a binge in a New York City drunk tank. When an inebriated old man, also in the cell, sings a passage from the Irish ballad, The Rare Old Mountain Dew, the narrator, which Shane is singing as, begins to dream of a former lover. The remainder of the song, which uh, it's kind of debated whether it's an internal monologue or if it's happening in real time or if he's recalling it, uh, it takes the form of a couple kind of doing a call and response. And uh, as the song goes, they're... Youthful hopes and dreams are crushed by addiction as they reminisce and also argue on Christmas Eve. Whew. Yeah. Heavy stuff. What a setting for a <laughs> holiday favorite. You know, not everyone's Christmas is uh, is cheery. That's true. Uh, but there's, I think there is hope in the song, too. Uh, Shane said that when he approached the song, he sat down, opened the sherry, Got the peanuts out and pretended it was Christmas because I think it was like July. <laughs> yeah, okay, is Christmas in the, uh, the Shane household? Sherry and peanuts? Uh, I think so. <laughs> wow, I don't know. I think that's. Uh, I feel like sherry is a very Christmassy liqueur. Sure, I'm not a sherry fan. I don't but, know, uh, but you know, uh, Shane wrote the majority of his lyrics uh, while he was recovering in a bed in Malmo, Sweden, after being struck down with double pneumonia during a Pogues tour of Scandinavia in late 1985. He later said, you get a lot of delirium and stuff, so I got quite a few good images out of that. All right, then. <laughs> Fascinatingly, when he wrote, started writing the song in 85, Shane had never been to New York. Oh. Most of his exposure to New York was from repeated viewings of Sergio Leone's 1984 mob film Once Upon a Time in America. Interesting. Okay. In fact, a melody from the famous score of the film by iconic Italian composer Ennio Morricone certainly sounds like it trickled into the beginning of the song. Check this out. This is the score from from uh, Once Upon a Time in America. Interesting. Yeah. Right? 
I've never seen this movie, have you? Uh, I think I saw it a long time ago. It's like Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, like classic yeah. mobster lineup. Yeah, check it out. As for the title of the song, it was borrowed from the novel A Fairy Tale of New York by Irish-American writer J.P. Dunleavy. While the stories in each work are mostly unrelated, they do share similar themes of immigrants traveling from Ireland to New York, hard times, and complicated romance. Shane later asked J.P. for his blessing to use the title. J.P. said he loved the song, but didn't really see what it had to do with his book. (laughs) Uh, Elvis Costello suggested calling the song Christmas Eve in the Drunk Tank. And as Shane said, what does he know? (laughs) It's a little too literal, you know? Yeah. A little too on the nose. Yeah, it is a little on the nose. And it's the first, first line of the song. The first demo of the song was recorded by Elvis Costello, and it featured Kate on vocals before she left the band. Here is the demo. It exists, and you can hear Elvis Costello. You can tell it's him counting off in the beginning. One, two, one, two, three. It's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. I like this uh, picture. That <laughs> yeah, you me too. It was Christmas Eve, babe. The piano is totally different. Yeah. And I also don't feel like he's going, he's singing with the melody of the piano. He's kind of, just things are happening. Yeah. The pacing is not there. Mm-mm. And the lyrics, the lyrics are pretty different. Uh, I think a lot of it takes place in Ireland. I'm jumping ahead a bit. Okay, I hear Kate now. She kind of has like a wispy she voice. She does. I don't know if I like it. They get into the more upbeat part, but it's it's a little disjointed compared to the one that we know. Just feels a little off. Um, and apparently we weren't the only ones that felt that way. Jem says that he doesn't think the band was quite capable of playing the song at the time. And uh, after this demo, Jem and Shane arranged and rearranged the song over and over, and then they try to record it every so often for several years. Interesting. It feels kind of like a throwaway song. If you weren't figuring it out right away, it feels like a song, you'd be like, all right, whatever, let's move on. But it's interesting they keep coming back to it. I think they knew they had something. And Shane just over and over was being a perfectionist and saying it's not quite right we need to go back to the drawing board make more changes we'll pick it up later and he said that there was a while there where he was editing the lyrics every single night wow uh when the pogues started working on if i should fall from grace with god their third album with steve lillywhite they decided to give the song another shot in the studio it was summertime again and abnormally hot the band was again struggling to make the song work especially when transitioning from gems parts to shane's parts Steve suggested that they record them separately and splice them together in editing, and that's what they did. The first time they'd ever done anything like that. Wow. The piano in the song was inspired by Tom Waits. Can totally hear that. Uh, Aaron Definitely. Copeland and the score for the 1954 film that I love, On the Waterfront, with Marlon Brando. Oh. Um, Shane also wanted to incorporate part of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, 
And Phil Chevron said that was a dumb idea. So they didn't, they didn't do that. <laughs> there might be a version out there with that. I don't know. Just before recording this episode, amongst the pile of Christmas gifts from online shopping, there was a little bit of wonder addressed to little old me delivered right to my door. And it was an assortment of Dark Matter Coffee's annual holiday blends, including their classic Old Dank Nick, as well as Chronica, and even their new one, Santana Claus. How smooth is that? I'm so excited to brew them for the cozy holiday times to come, and you too can enjoy these festive beans with free shipping if you head to darkmattercoffee.com and use code WANTEDAHITCAST. That's all one word, WANTEDAHITCAST, at darkmattercoffee.com for free shipping on some of the finest coffee beans that you will ever experience. I hope that you're able to share them with loved ones this holiday season. Let's toast to that. So the song was just about finally finished after all that time, except it needed a woman to duet with Shane because Kate had left the band for the attractions. They threw around all kinds of ideas from Chrissy Hine to Susie Quattro. And now Kirsty McCall has entered the chat. Welcome. Kirsty McCall was born in South London in 1959. Her father was folk singer Ewan McCall. And I swear this is absolute coincidence and blew my mind. He wrote Dirty Old Town. No shit. But that's not how they met. It has nothing to do with that. Wow. Like, it never comes up that they even make the connection. Wow. Yeah. So crazy. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. This story is just full of magic. Like, the whole thing. I love it. It really is. Kirstie mostly grew up with her mother, who was a dancer, and as a teenager, played in local punk bands, including the band The Drug Addicts, A-D-D-I-X. Wow, that's who released, great. Yeah, who released an EP that our old friends at Stiff Records noticed. Mm. They didn't much care for The Drug Addicts, but they liked Kirstie and signed her. Uh, she then released her first single, They Don't Know, in 1979, which peaked at number two on the Airplay chart but then didn't chart overall because of a distributive strike that prevented it from hitting stores. Man. Very English. <laughs> Very English, but also imagine, like, yeah. fuck. Yep. Uh, do you know this song? Check it out. All Honestly, all of her Stiff Records stuff is so great, and there's a collection. It's Kirstie McCall, the Stiff Records years, and it's so good. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. Okay, I've heard this in movies and stuff. I like it. So Tracy Ullman covered They Don't Know. Uh, and that was in 1983. Tracy Ullman covered it before she'd kind of done her comedy career, I feel like, but she's just doing music. Uh, hit number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. Mm, wow. Yeah. Um, McCall then released such British hits as There's a Guy Works Down the Chip Shop Swears He's Elvis. Ooh. And he's on the beach, which I love this song. This is such a fantastic song. That's one I've been like putting on playlists for a few years. Check it out. Such a good song. The video is so 80s. It's great. I'm into it. However, Kirsty had been experiencing stage fright and stopped touring. And her contractual issues with Stiff made recording her own music difficult as well. So she and the Pogues are experiencing the same issue, but they don't know each other. Love it. In the meantime, she wrote and recorded songs for television and sang in the studio with artists such as The Smiths, Robert Plant, The Rolling Stones, Talking Heads, Simple Minds, and more. McCall Good also to keep. Yeah. McCall also famously sequenced U2's Joshua Tree. Whoa. Yes. Because it was wow. it was produced by her husband, Steve Lillywhite. 
Oh my god! Oh, it's wow, coming full circle. I don't don't know that I if I knew that Steve did that album. Yeah, yep. Uh, wow. So the the Pogues hadn't even thought of Kirsty McCall for Fairy Tale of New York, but Steve, who was married to her, mm-hmm. of course mentioned her, and the band was like, "Yeah, I don't know, maybe." <laughs> and so he recorded her singing it at their house, and brought it into the studio the next day, and Shane was so impressed that he insisted on re-recording his own vocals because he didn't think they were good enough to compete with Kirsty. Wow. And they kept her recording from Steve's house. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what we hear in the song. I wonder if they had a nice setup, like a recording setup. You'd imagine. Yeah, I would think so. Uh, So they didn't know each other, but Shane knew of Kirsty. He said, I was madly in love with Kirsty from the first time I saw her on Top of the Pops. <laughs> she was a genius in her own right, and she was a better producer than Steve was. Wow. She could make a song her own, and she made Fairy Tale her own. Wow. So lovely. Yeah. Shane goes on to say, Kirsty knew exactly the right measure of viciousness and femininity and romance to put into it, and she had a very strong character, and it came across in a big way. In operas, you have this double aria. It's what the woman does that really matters. The man lies, the woman tells the truth. Ooh, what a line. So good. In the end of the song, we all realize that the couple is reconciling their differences and realizing they're inextricably connected, faults and all. They can't make it all alone, he says. It's kind of like the Pina Colada song, if you think about it. (laughs) It kind of is. It kind of is. Yeah, they end up back together through it all. It's cute. But, you know, the end of this song, the what ifs and what if shoulda couldas are still there. And uh, Shane says when describing the story, the ending is completely open. Mm. Yeah. A lovely sentiment. So that brings us to the music video, which we should watch. I don't think I've ever seen the video for this. I've seen it a couple times. I feel like it always comes up on like suggested videos on YouTube. I don't know if I ever saw it on TV though. But uh, it's very cool. Again, like I'm very aware of the song, yeah, and know the song, but really haven't given too much of a yeah. my time of day. The video is very like uh, it's a wonderful life uh, era holiday film. Yep, yep, definitely. Do you notice the cop? I, he looked familiar. I'll you'll, see him again. You'll, you'll see who it is. The cop who's arresting Shane. Yeah, Shane is a very, very. Uh, <laughs> Attractive fellow. <laughs> There's a clip of him on Graham Norton where Graham Norton's like, women love you, what's the deal? And Shane's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, his, he has famous teeth. I was going to say, if you, uh, if he was young and coming of age now, do you think he'd have like a fatty endorsement from like yeah. a whistle line or something? <laughs> <laughs> he did get his teeth replaced a few oh. years before he died. Um, yeah, so... I actually don't know if he comes back, but the cop in the beginning is Matt Dillon. Is it really? Yeah. Is is there a story there? How'd that come about? Oh, there's I a story there. It's great. So Matt had already been in the Outsiders and Rumblefish at the, at the time. So he was like getting famous. And Dillon was a huge fan of the Pogues. And he met the band backstage at a New York show on the Pogues' first U.S. tour in 86. So the Pogues made it to New York between the time they first draft of the song and the time it was released how fun and when they met backstage matt kissed shane's hand and said i dig your shit man i love your shit <laughs> which just sounds like such a like i'm nervous thing to say to yeah. somebody 
But uh, Shane remembered it and tells that story. I love that there's cigarettes uh, just like smoking in the ashtray. Yeah. And their live performance part here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is the New York City pipe band? Is that the actual pipe band? From That's the-, the actual pipe band from the uh, NYPD. Um, NYPD, definitely back then, was full of Irish, I'm sure. Uh, definitely, definitely was. Yeah, that's so. That's the that is the pipe band. But in the song, they talk about the NYPD choir. There is no NYPD choir. There never has mm-hmm. been an NYPD choir. And they actually have the pipe band sing as the choir in the video. <laughs> yeah, but the only they because uh, he says in the song that they sang uh, Galway Bay, but they didn't know that. So the only song that they all knew that they figured out quickly was the Mickey Mouse Club theme song. So that's what they're singing in the video. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> Uh, so Matt Dillon, when he's when he's playing the police officer, uh, I guess it was super cold when they filmed the video, like like bitterly cold. And Matt was too nervous to push Shane around and kind of be rough like a cop. And Shane yelled at him and said, "Just kick the shit out of me and throw me in the cell, and then we can all be warm." <laughs> <laughs> and then the concert footage of, of them playing uh, was shot to closely resemble a BBC Two. Uh, concert of Billie Holiday that the band loved and would watch all the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And also, Shane doesn't know how to play piano, so it's accordion player James playing piano, but he put Shane's rings on, so it looks like <laughs> it's Shane. And uh, at first, James thought it was humiliating, but he said he did it for the sake of the art. I love it. Pogues are a team, you know? Yeah. The video was directed by Peter Doherty, who is deeply connected with both the New York punk scene and the early hip-hop scene in New York, where he was good friends with Beastie Boys, Rick Rubin, and Fab Five Freddy. Uh, A year after he made this video, he was working in the promotions department at MTV, and we've talked about this. It was a time when MTV wasn't playing a lot of black music. And it was then, in 1988, that Peter helped create Yo! MTV Raps and produce the show. No shit. Yep. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So wow. he's responsible for that. And he also directed the Beastie Boys video for Hold It Now, Hit It. Oh, that's a heartwarming video. Yeah, it's good, right? Feel, it's really good. It, feeling the Christmas yeah, spirit. Yeah, it looks like a Frank Capra movie, but with a bunch of punks. Yeah. Fairytale New York was released in the United Kingdom and Ireland in November 1987, swiftly becoming a hit. It spent five weeks at number one on the Irish charts. And, uh, the Pogues and Kirsty McCall played the song on top of the pops, and that propelled it to number two in the UK top seventy-five. Number two, so number number two. What was number one? Do you know? Number one was the Pet Shop Boys. Always on my mind. Oh wow! Yeah, because isn't, isn't the uh, the Christmas song a big deal? Yeah, yeah. So, it, it's it's become that. I think at the okay. time, I don't know if it was as much of a big deal. Okay. Now it is. Uh, in, in England, you know, what song is is number one at Christmas and people put a lot of money and effort into it. Uh, but but Shane says, going to number one in Ireland is the only thing that mattered to me. I wouldn't have expected the English to have great taste. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and Steve Lillywhite says, I love the fact that it's never been number one. It's for the underdogs. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I would ask you about the Billboard Hot 100, but. uh the song has never made the Billboard Hot 100, uh, uh, despite its New York setting and its memorable black and white video. As as an article in Billboard pointed out, uh, "Fairy Tale of New York" has proved considerably less popular in the U.S., where it has never reached the Hot 100, only charting on Billboard's 
holiday digital song sales chart, peaking at number 22 in 2011. What a what a chart. I feel like this year, though, I feel like this year we're going to see, see it peaking. This song has been covered extensively oh, yeah. by artists such as Florence and the Machine and Billy Bragg, Ed Sheeran, Glenn Hansard and Imelda Maine, Ooh. Vance Joy, Stars, Jeff Tweedy, Coldplay, No Use for a Name, Jesse Malin, uh, KT Tunstall, and many, many more. But yeah, I I kind of find the Pogues to be uncoverable. Like when I hear covers of the Pogues, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, to cover a band like this, you're you're very much like just mimicking. Who yeah, they it's are. hard. It's hard. It's like it's like covering the Clash. Yeah. It's like okay, like the you know they they just have such a distinct sound and energy. Like nobody else has yeah. it. Nobody else can do it. I just think they're they're so unique and kind of have have an unmatched energy. Some of those covers are are beautiful. Uh, some are not. Uh, Can't win them and all. I didn't you know? feel the need to. Br- I didn't feel the need to bring any of them up. Uh, but I do need to bring up the John Bon Jovi cover of no, this song. Not. I, know you I think don't. I do. <laughs> Here it is. <sighs> I don't dislike Bon Jovi either. It just it doesn't need to be a thing. Yeah, he covered this song in 2020 as part of an EP, a John Bon Jovi oh. Christmas. And it does not only feature rewritten lyrics, but features him singing both parts. Well, it was 2020. We had to stay <laughs> away from each other. <laughs> hey, know? shit was weird. Shit was weird that, yeah. It's, it's an experience. Sorry, the first the first comment. John is a fantastic human and has done so much for the community. That being said, this is the equivalent of your grandma serving frozen fish sticks and pizza bites on Christmas morning. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna thumbs up, K Busy. It's really bad. And he's like kind of imitating an Irish accent. It's just very weird. The the second quote is, on the plus side, if John hadn't destroyed this classic Irish song, we wouldn't now have one of the funniest comment sections of all YouTube. <laughs> well, I would have to spend some time so, on there. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Everyone, 2020 couldn't possibly get any worse. Bon Jovi, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh... The Pogue's official Twitter account retweeted a post by Irish musician Rob Smith that said, I've heard Bon Jovi's cover of Fairy Tale of New York. It's the worst thing to ever happen to music. And I'm including both the murder of John Lennon and Brian McFadden's solo career in here. This is worse. And they and the Pogue said what Rob said. Uh, and Steve Steve Lillywhite said the worst ever version of this song. Sorry, John, this is embarrassing and pointless. Yeah, this is like so unnecessary. Uh, though Shane McGowan said it was interesting and soulful. Okay. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of what you say when you haven't heard the song. It's like when your friend writes a book you don't want to read, and you're like, "How was it?" You're like, "Oh man, it was uh, it was insightful." In- insightful uh, is the word. Yeah, good. that's definitely yeah. true. uh and you are a philadelphia eagles fan go birds uh and uh i probably wouldn't have mentioned this if it Mm. weren't for that and honestly i haven't listened to it yet 
I have listened to it. it. Uh, well, could you tell us about it? Uh, so, Jason Kelsey, who some of you might know as Travis Kelsey's brother, but uh, yeah, Jason Kelsey is the real winner of the family there. Uh, he is on the offensive line for the Birds, and uh, he and a couple guys last year decided to make a Christmas album for charity, and it was fantastic and, and very fun. So this year, they're doing it again, and uh, this is one of the songs they covered. However, they changed some of the lines, so it is the fairy tale of Philadelphia. And uh, this is, uh, I guess they recorded it over the summer, right? Um, actually, uh, this is Jason and Travis as well, which uh, I believe it went number one on iTunes. They're pretty decent singers, and some of the guys, other guys from the Eagles are on other songs, and they're some of them are pretty good. The, the music is very faithful yes. to the song. It's probably tracked, honestly. But they do change the lyrics to be about Philadelphia, right? I think so. So it's just funny because you got to think about like 350 pound, big bearded line. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I think it's cool if they're Pokes fan. I'll, I'll give them that. I'll give them that. Uh, and the proceeds went to the Children's Crisis Treatment Center and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So can't hate on that. I did also want to mention there are a lot of cultural references in this song. And this seemed like a good place to do it as we're talking about some cultural touch points. Uh, first, it references several Irish songs, the most obvious being Galway Bay, which I mentioned, which was popularized by Bing Crosby in the opening. Yeah, I guess that's like the main version people know, but a, uh, a beloved Irish song. Um, in the opening verse, uh, the guy in the drunk tank is singing the rare old Mountain Dew which is a folk song covered by the Pogues themselves, as well as the, Dub- the Dubliners and other Irish bands. Um, the fourth verse starts with, You are handsome, you are pretty. Uh, and that is a reference to the song, uh, I'll Tell Me Ma, also known as the Bell of Belfast City. And that the chorus of that song is, She is handsome, she is pretty. Van Morrison covered that song. So the Chieftains... And then some non-Irish cultural references. Uh, Frank Sinatra is mentioned. I mentioned on the waterfront. I love all the like New York kind of things that are referenced. Yeah, yeah. You know, even though they'd never been there when they started writing the song. Um, it almost makes it better because it's like this like romanticized version then of New York. Yeah, right. It's great. Um, and the the final verse is opening line is I could have been someone, and uh, that recalls Marlon Brando's speech, uh, his monologue in On the Waterfront, starting oh, cool. with I could have been a contender. Uh, so pretty neat i also again love that movie i gotta check it out oh you gotta see on the waterfront so yeah let's get into where are they now we have some things to share uh first kirstie mccall she toured with the pogues after the song's success and incredibly it helped her get over her stage fright and inspired her to relaunch her solo career and on that note i actually think why don't we watch the performance together uh they, this is them performing it on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Man, why not? In 1988. I love a good Christmas song outside of Christmas season. So. Mm-hmm. Crowd loves it. Oh, they do. Can you imagine seeing the Pope? Curse- oh, I know. Exists. Oh, they, they added snow. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Christy McCall looks like um, Molly Ringwald. Yeah, she looks yes, like yes, Molly yes. Ringwald here. That's great. Nice little. Uh, oh, it's good. Fuck yeah. Christy McCall sounds awesome too. Yeah. She's great, man. I feel like she's unheralded. She's an influential figure. 
I mean, they kill it, especially for a band that was like, oh, we can't play this song. We can't record it. We're not good enough for this. They kill it. Yeah, it's rad. Really good. Well rehearsed for sure. Um, so after the tour, Kirsty continued to sing with more notable artists such as Happy Mondays, David Gilmore, and Johnny Marr. But most importantly, she started making albums again. And she had a number of additional top 30 hits in England. And her best of collection, Galore, reached the UK top 10 in 1995. However, she grew frustrated and disenchanted with the music industry and experienced writer's block, which prevented her from recording for several years. She resurfaced in 2000 with her album Tropical Brainstorm. It's a great name for an album. Uh, It was critically acclaimed and enjoyed some radio success in the U.S. with the song In These Shoes. Check this song out. This is from 2000. (laughs) And my favorite Peter Gabriel song. This song had some success in the U.S. because it was featured in Sex and the City. And Mm. Bette Midler covered it on one of her Mm. albums. Very different than the stuff we were listening to earlier. I know. I was like, whoa. Santana wannabe guitar behind it. Well, it was 2000. Yeah. That was the time when to incorporate all that Latin that Latin music. Uh, Kirsty toured to support that album, which took her to Cuba for a BBC program. Afterward, she and her boyfriend, she and Steve had split up at this point. Um, her, two, uh, her boyfriend uh, and her two sons joined her and they headed to Mexico for a vacation where they went diving in the Chancanab Reef in Cozumel. Mm-hmm. They were diving. The story's not going to end well, huh? They were diving in an area where no watercraft was allowed, and they were the veteran dive master. As they were finishing up their dive and swimming back, a speedboat entered the restricted area at a high speed. Oh, shit. Kirsty rushed to push one of her sons out of the way and successfully saved him, but in the process, she was run over by the powerboat and died instantly. Holy fuck. Yeah. Uh, wow. The boat was being used by the family of Guillermo Gonzalez Nova, a multimillionaire who owned a Mexican grocery store chain. Okay. He was on board, but said a boat ham was driving. Witnesses have said that, in fact, no one was in control of the boat, and it had far exceeded the speed that Nova and the boat ham claimed. The boat ham took the blame and was found guilty of culpable homicide and was sentenced to three years in prison, though he paid a punitive fine and avoided jail time. Wow. He has since expressed to people close to him that he received money for taking the blame. Damn right he did. Yep. After the incident, Kirsty's family started the Justice for Kirsty campaign, an effort toward a judicial review of the events, working with the Mexican government and the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The organization was critical of Mexican authorities' handling of the effort, and at least one federal prosecutor was found liable for breach of authority. There is a 2004 documentary by the BBC called Who Killed Kirsty McCall, which I unfortunately didn't have time to watch for this taping. Uh, so it's a big deal. Um, Fairy Tale of New York was re-released in the UK and Ireland for Christmas in 2005. It reached number three in the UK at that time. And all proceeds from the latter releases were donated toward a mixture of homeless charities and justice for Kirsty. Shane talked about hearing the song after Kirsty's death, and he stated, For a while it used to depress me, but now I just think every time it's a tribute to Kirsty. And even Bono took action in 2006. 
speaking about the issue at a U2 concert in Monterey and demanding the Mexican government take action. Wow. In 2009, after it appeared that all that could be achieved was achieved, the campaign came to an end and all proceeds were donated to children's and music charities in Mexico and Cuba. Wow. Since McCall's death in 2000, other vocalists to sing the part alongside the Pogues include Katie Malua, Sinead O'Connor, and banjo player Jim Finer and, and co-writer of the song, his daughter Ella, which is pretty neat. That's cool. Fuck yeah. The Pogues had a string of UK and Ireland hits in the early 90s, and then in 1991, Shane was fired from the Pogues due to a string of no-shows, including on their tour with Bob Dylan. No shit. His drug and alcohol usage had gone too far for the band, and Shane said of the of the firing, what took you so long? <laughs> he formed a new band called Shane McGowan and the Popes, making albums and touring until 2005. The Pogues continued without Shane, with a number of albums and tours, and even a short stint with Joe Strummer as lead singer before he passed. Oh, wow. They then reunited several times with Shane throughout the 2000s for albums and tours. In the Guardian piece I mentioned about this song, uh, I think the writer Dorian Linsky said it best when he said, Fairy Tale of New York has ended up being a parable of the band's life together. The youthful optimism, the bitter recriminations, the uncertain detente. Well. Uh, in the meantime, Jem Finer veered his career into science, which I mentioned he studied in college including composing a piece of music that was designed to last for a thousand years without ever repeating itself. He then spent time as the artist-in-residence at the Astrophysics Sub-Department at University of Oxford, Damn. working on sculptural observations. He later received an honorary doctorate from the University of Bath, and he has continued his work combining physics and art into the present. If you read about him, he's got all kinds of like crazy experiments combining with stuff. Right. And in 2008, the Nipple Erectors reformed. Wow. Playing a secret gig at the 100 Club in, on Oxford Street in London. The lineup consisted of Shan Bradley, Shane McGowan, Eric Baconstrip, and Fritz Douglas. And Bradley's daughter, Eucalypta, sang backing vocals on their biggest song, Gabrielle. Is Baconstrip a real last name? I, that's what it looks like. I think so. I might have changed it. These punks, you know. What a what a name. Yeah. I hope that's real. Yeah, I hope so too. Wow. And sadly, Shane McGowan left this planet last month on November 30th. He passed at home from complications of pneumonia after several years of serious health issues. Mm. Today his coffin was paraded on the streets of Dublin on a horse-drawn carriage for his funeral procession which was attended by thousands upon thousands of Pogues fans. Oh, damn. The service was, of course, in Tipperary and was attended by a number of notable musicians, including Bob Geldof, your boy, Mm. and Bono, who did readings. I didn't know about Glenn Hansard until you told me. Uh, Irish President Michael D. Higgins was there. Yeah, people love him. Yep. And uh, Nick Cave performed the Pogues song a rainy night in Soho at the service. It's beautiful. If you want to check it out. The song has had some controversy as the lyrics do include the word slut, as well as a homophobic slur. The BBC started playing an edited version in 2007 and then reverses decision after outspoken listeners, including Shane's own mother 
called in to protest. I don't know the homophobic slur. Is it the F word? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interestingly enough, the the F word is mentioned in uh, Alice's Restaurant. Oh, oh yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Huh. Oh, we used to use that word a lot. Yeah. In 2020, the BBC started playing the censored version again, and BBC stations do play it, edited or unedited, depending on the, what they want to do. Uh, Shane released a statement about the censorship that read. The words were used by characters because it fit the way they would speak and with their character. She is not supposed to be a nice person or even a wholesome person. She's a woman of a certain generation at a certain time in history, and she's down her luck and desperate. Her dialogue is as accurate as I could make it, but she's not intended to offend. She's just supposed to be an authentic character. Not all characters in songs and stories are angels or even decent and respectable. Sometimes characters in songs and stories have to be evil or nasty in order to tell the story effectively. Yeah. I mean, that's art. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he went on to say, if people didn't understand that, then he was happy for them to censor the song. Okay. In the UK, the, the song is the most played non-Carol Christmas song of the 21st century. It is wow. frequently cited as the best Christmas song of all time in various television, radio, and magazine-related polls in UK and Ireland. Interesting. It and, just shows uh, the difference between the two cultures, where like, ours is probably Mariah Carey. Yeah, right? <laughs> and there's a, a very different version. There's is probably tune. between, what, this and Wham? Well, yeah. Uh, it was voted in a national poll in 2012 as the nation's favorite Christmas song in the UK. Interesting. Yep. It has never been the UK number one. Uh, it's still only gotten to number two, uh, which I think just adds to the, the folklore. Maybe, maybe this year is the year. Yeah. Maybe this year is the year. It should be, um, or not. That would be poetic too. Yeah. Number um, two. Let's get number two. Yeah. Right. Uh, Pogue's accordion player, James Fernley says it's like fairy tale of New York went off and inhabited its own planet. I mean, yeah. Like, uh, in the sense of comparing it to the rest of their career, it's yeah. Yeah, by far yeah. the. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a song I knew. Uh, he also said, "We've all had hopes and we've had our conflicts, but there's some other damn thing that's binding us all together, and hopefully, always will." Uh, Shane said in an interview that it's the most complicated song he's ever been involved with, and the beauty of it is that it sounds really simple. He said it was a happy time for the group. I think it's our Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I think Fun. he's pretty dead yeah, on yeah. there. Um. And as for Shane McGowan, I love what James Fernley says about him in his memoir. He says, a stable perception was never reachable as to whether Shane was a genius or a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the Guardian article uh, has a fantastic quotation that I'll end with here that says, there's the public image of McGowan as a wayward alcoholic with a bombsite of a mouth and a wheezing ghost of a laugh. <sighs> then there is the clever, diligent craftsman who sweated for two years to make Fairy Tale of New York perfect. Love it. That's Shane McGowan. That's Fairy Tale of New York. R.I.P. And I'd like to add a little addendum here. We should watch hundreds of people today in Dublin singing Mm. Fairy Tale of New York during the funeral procession of Mr. Shane McGowan. Absolutely. Let's watch it. Oh wow. And 
It's really neat. Awesome. It's getting a little dusty in here. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Oh, man. That's, That's it. Wild. That's Fairy Tale of New York. We did it, and I did it in like an hour and a half. That's not bad. What a time to do it, too. The Pogues, uh, similar to like Devo, it's like, oh, I didn't realize how much mythology I was getting into, but I should have known. You should have known. Because you have to tell the whole story in order to get to the song, you know? You have to have the context of the band and where they come from and who they are. Yeah. I'm watching the procession. I'm glad we did this today and not a couple of days ago, like we meant to. Yeah. Very, very yeah. fitting. Yeah, it turned out. Uh, I didn't even know the funerals today until I was doing additional research this afternoon. And Great story. And I, I forgot how, you know, the song is uplifting at the end of the day. Um, it is. At the end, it's like, like we're going to be okay. so often just the beginning parts. And it's like, okay, this is not like what <laughs> I want right now in my Christmas playlist. But yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful song. And then it gets upbeat. Yeah. Um, that's the Pogues for you. That's the Pogues. They, and that's, you know, I really feel like a lot of things come full circle with this. And um, one of them is that he said that in his town in Ireland, like times were tough during the day, but then at night it was revelry and they were celebrating like it was Christmas every day just because they're alive. Um, and I think that song is kind of like that, too. Love like that. It, it has this celebratory nature, even though it is bleak. Love that. Yeah. So many things come full circle. It's such a magical story. If Megan was still here, I would have her sign off by saying Merry Christmas in Gaelic. <laughs> but, uh, that would have been amazing. If she said that, I can re-say it. But I can, reading the words, I'm like, nope, nope. Not going to yeah, try. Not gonna try. It's, it's, yeah. Rest in, rest in peace, Shane you know, McGowan. Yeah, rest in peace. Now we have uh, our third Christmas installment. We do. We'll continue. I have more on the list. What will we do next year? Fans, right in. Let us know what you want next year. Yeah, let us know what you want to hear for Christmas songs. We have a few in mind, but there's a lot of weird Christmas songs. That's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit. Thanks for listening. Good luck getting that song out of your head. If you enjoyed the show, please do all the things podcasts usually ask you to. They really help. Tell a friend about the show, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, write a review on your favorite podcast app, and visit our website, ywahpod.com. That's ywahpod.com for updates on new episodes and our merch store. We have t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, coffee mugs, stickers, and more, and it all goes back into the podcast. We would love to hear what you thought of the episode, and we also want to hear if there's something that we missed. You can reach us on Instagram and Twitter at ywahpod or directly via email at ywhpod at gmail.com. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Beidler. And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.